Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book, all right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode 19, Fun Home, a Family Tragicomic, by Allison Bechtel. reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. 
This podcast is all about books and literature. It's basically a really hip happening reading club. Each month we pick a particular either it could be a play, it could be a novel, it could be like we're doing now a graphic novel. We look at it, we ask some questions about it, and then we both determine whether it's worthy of its reputation and as teachers we decide whether or not we would teach it in school as well. Well, I'm Stella this time. I'm the one who <laughs> chose this one and along with me I don't even, I can't really compare you, I think, to any of the characters in the book because the main male character, I think, you don't want to be compared to. So I'll just say that it's my hip-happening pal, Tom Panarese. We're, we're running out of pairs for <laughs> that shtick, aren't be. we? Yes, we'll have to revise. Yeah, and, and I don't want to be compared to the male mm-hmm. lead in this, mm-hmm. uh, in this yeah. particular one. Oh, man. It's a, yeah, I wanted to read this again. I had read this before, but I wanted to read it again because Live Arts was putting on the musical, and so I wanted to reread it and then go in and see the musical. I didn't get it in time, probably waiting on your copy, Tom, but I did get to see the musical, which is interesting. So got to sort of see this story in two different lenses, but I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to discussing it with you. Yeah, me too. If you were, we've done, we haven't done this in a while, but if you were to give emojis to this, this book, how do you think you would describe this in a text to somebody? Describe it? Yeah, Cause like, emojis, cause, I mean. Because <laughs> fun, fun Home, just the, the title, you could do that celebration with party streamers and a house. That's there easy. you go. That works. I guess, I wonder, do I have a coffin? I don't if, know. if there was a coffin, I think I would use that, and then the emoji of like the the lesbian couple. And I wonder if you could, if people would be able to dead lesbians. Oh, so yeah, want to kill true. all your gays? Oh, true. No, <laughs> that's bury your gays. Yeah, that's right. Bury your gays. That's, that's true. what it that is. That wouldn't be the best. I don't know if I have a coffin. Yeah, that's true. I wonder how I would do that. Oh, there is a coffin. Yep. Hmm. I'd have to rethink that then. Yeah. I guess I I could do two couples, but then it would be like I'm killing off multiple uh, gay couples, which really wouldn't work out. So <laughs> we're doing fun home here. And uh, first off, we, we need to talk about our, our history with this particular graphic novel. And what is your history with, <laughs> with this graphic novel? This is the second time I've read it. I read it last year. Uh, let me check Goodreads to see when. I read it like I think it was last summer. I had heard of Alison Bechdel mm-hmm. mainly through something that that's in in the bio you did of her, um, the Bechdel test. Yes, her because I name. yeah I've been on the internet long enough that <laughs> I know what the Bechdel test is, and I had heard that she wrote, you know, uh, like some of the things she was she was famous for, and and Fun Home was one of them, and then I think one day I happened to be in the public library and. It was on the shelf as far as the graphic novel shelves go. Mm-hmm. And it was in the adult graphic novel section, not the young adult graphic novel section. I picked it out and read it. Then I uh, got it. This was this would have been back in September. I finished it in September. Okay. So and then I um then I picked it up again for our our particular episode here. Mm-hmm. So. I I guess my so yours was actually pretty recent. Pretty recent, yeah. Mine was a couple years ago, and it was actually 
I guess it would have been 2015 because the musical had come out. So my history sort of surrounds this musical for whatever reason because I like I, – I love Broadway. And oftentimes I'll tune in and watch the Tonys. And I just really recommend <laughs> watching. And, and I'm going to include – well – I'm trying to think which songs I'm going to include from the soundtrack, so I guess we'll figure it, find out. But there's this song where little Allison is, she's watching this butch woman come in, and she's just, like, memorized by her. Mesmerized, sorry, not memorized. Mesmerized by her, and it's called Keys, and, and she's just focusing on, on her look. And the way that that actress sang that song, that little actress was just really, and her intense look and everything, I thought, wow, what is this? So I listened to the soundtrack, and then once I found out that was based off of a graphic novel, I went out and got that. And what's interesting about this is what I always share with people when I read this is, like, I read it, I remember when I was at the gym and on on the bike, because I like to do some cardio in the beginning, and <laughs> I remember, like, turning to some of those, like, scandalous pages and then thinking, oh, oh, oh my, <laughs> so sort of hiding it. There were a couple of them. When I was reading it the second time, because I, I got it out again to prepare for this, I thought, oh, I don't remember, maybe I was misremembering, but then further on, I was like, oh, oh, that's the one I was thinking about so it's just a little awkward in a in a public place to potentially <laughs> be reading it but uh yeah that's that's my my experience so I finally got to see the musical just a, one act an hour 30 minutes very quick and it very much to give you a sense because we're not going to talk about the musical though I do recommend it it very much follows this non-linear pattern that the graphic novel sets up and they have three different actresses playing three different versions of Allison you have little Allison you've got college age Allison when she really comes out and then you have adult Allison who's on stage all the time and at times she's our narrator um, she's always behind a drafting board and at times she inserts herself into the actual uh, storyline and she does it in a very poignant moment which I'm definitely going to use that song where even though college age Allison was in a car and the last time she would have been in the car with her father and had that conversation they're sort of struggling to find that conversation and common ground and everything it's adult Allison who's there because she's reflecting and looking back so it's done really well and I think it's great that they had three different actresses to play it so that you could really focus on and tell what time period in the Bechdel's lives it was taking place. So I, I really recommend that. Um, obviously, you know, you have to be ready for, it's not, it wasn't actually too scandalous. I was wondering, you know, what was it going to be like, but (laughs) it wasn't too bad besides, you know, uh, a makeout. I have yet to see like a full on, you know, sex scene on, on stage, which is probably good. I don't think I'm prepared for that. I guess if I ever go see, um, Oh, what is that one musical called? I know you have a complicated history with musical theater. Uh, it's Spring Awakening. I guess if I ever see that, that'll be my, my first one. But anyways, all that to say, <laughs> my, my history uh, with, with the graphic novel very much circulates around the musical. So, Okay. Well, you know what? This is probably the easiest book and real-life history of the author because I'm not really going to talk about Alison Bechtel at all. I think it would just be, to a certain extent unnecessary and superfluous because this book is in fact well is it a memoir or is it an autobiography that's the question <laughs> because it does it's oh, not just no. one sna- i know it's not just one snapshot in time but it's not uh, i don't know 
I don't know. Uh, I guess an expanded memoir, maybe. It's certainly autobiographical. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So you know, there's there's not much to say because we're going to be talking about her a great deal. But I do at least want to say, of course, we all know her for the Bechtel test. <laughs> I don't know if uh, I knew of that actually until a man told me about it, <laughs> which is kind of amusing. But um, yeah, I have you know I'm on board with the Bechtel test, but sometimes I think it's a little too easy to 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 judge things by with it. So I'm yeah I'm always guarded uh, when I use it. I, I'm trying to remember where I first heard it, and I really want to say that I heard it when I was watching one of Anita Sarkeesian's videos. The Venomous Frequency, oh. which I haven't watched one of her videos in a long time, but because I just just haven't, I don't know why I stopped watching. Um, probably because I don't watch a lot of YouTubers anymore. But um, I remember her mentioning it in something, or it was mentioned somewhere in the realm of that. Either I was following something online or whatever, but she was part of the conversation. Okay, and I agree with you on that because I. This is something, and I'd have to, I've done no research on the origins of this, or if Alison Bechtel herself has said this, but I want to say that that the Bechtel test was originally just kind of a one-off joke on her part. Wow! Like not like you know she was making fun of them, but wow. I think it was. I don't think it was meant to be like. I don't think she ever meant it to be like a benchmark or a rubric. Yeah. But then again, I might be. I'm. This is conjecture on my heart part, and I'm trying to think back. Like, where did I say that it wasn't like as it's been intended? It was intended not as to be as used as severely as it is. I agree with you. I think that it is relied upon a little too much. Yeah. So you have to be careful when you make jokes about things. You might yeah. get yourself in trouble. Yeah, so it was either Anissa Krasikisian or it was Sue from uh, DC Women Kicking A who mentioned it where I first saw it. So I'm trying to remember the context. But um, I thought that as much as I enjoyed the book Superwomen by Carolyn Cook, I thought she mentioned the Bechdel test like way too many times. She does mention a lot, which I tried to bring up in our discussion about like what does she think the merits are and how seriously should we Mm -hmm. take it. Yeah. Because a lot of things might fail, and and just because something fa- wow we're we're getting on something here, but just because something fails doesn't mean that it's not a worthwhile piece of blank, you know, literature. That I think, something. and I think that is where the people who take it too seriously kind of there's a fault in their argument, yeah. like where they will readily condemn something because it doesn't pass it, and I I understand the frustration that comes with it, but at the same time, like there are movies where they're um, there are movies where there are I don't think there are women in the movie yeah and they're good movies sure. you know for instance like yeah. you know the, the, there are a fair share of war movies that don't really have female characters mm-hmm. in them and they are held up as outstanding war movies and things like that and, yeah. and rightfully so mm-hmm. well that'd be interesting I'd like to talk to her and <laughs> see how, how yeah how she came up with that and whether or not it was a joke she is originally best known for her long-running comic strip Dykes to Watch Out For. And, of course, this, though, her graphic memoir, it is called a graphic memoir. In 2006 is what she's really known for now, I would say, besides the Bechtel test. So it probably goes Bechtel test, fun home, and maybe uh, <laughs> Dykes to to watch, watch out, out for. for, yeah. And, of course, uh, it did win a Tony, the musical. So it was adapted into a musical, and it won a Tony. And uh, which is interesting. You don't really think about graphic novels being turned into 
musicals or stage productions, but it's it certainly has worked out. You think films right away, but not this, but it certainly worked out. Um, the other thing I want to talk about were the challenges that it faced because of its subject matter. Uh, so it sort of ties to, I suppose, my trials on the bike, on the, on the bike machine in the, in the gym, right? Uh, and this is all taken from cbldf.org, so I just want to give them props there. Comic Book Legal Defense yep. Fund. Yep. At first I thought they were just annoying inserts in my mail comic packages, but now I see their, their worth because <laughs> they would send little handouts to things to give them sort of a state of the of the union of yeah. look what, what things are being challenged now. Yeah, they also, they also provide um, legal counsel and help provide representation for creators and comic shop owners if they fall into legal trouble over the content of their um, their works mm-hmm. and cannot afford because uh, you know these are small businesses and freelancers they can't always can't afford attorneys so they, they do in addition to protecting the first amendment they do some very very good work it all started in 2006, which it was published in 2006, so I guess right off the bat, and you wonder if these people sort of look for these things, but uh, Louise Mills of Marshall, Missouri, thought that this book, as well as Blankets, which I have on my shelf but have yet to read, by Craig Thompson, should be removed from the local public library. Mills characterized both of them as pornography, and uh, that's in quotes, so I guess that's exact word. Uh, and she thought that because, of course, it looks like a comic book, that children would be drawn to it. And then somebody else spoke at a library board meeting uh, saying that having these books could result in, and this sort of made me step back a little bit when I was copying and pasting here, quote, seedy people coming into the library and moving into our community, end quote. Now. <laughs> I if that is not a veiled homophobic well, or see, otherwise bigoted yeah. statement, I don't yes. know what is. So, you know, you can't I, – I can't really say what her intention was in that. But just reading that on page, you're basically saying, like, you you don't want gay people around you at all. And you're describing them as seedy people. I mean, they're just like you – I mean, it's a normal person. It's just their lifestyle may be different than yours. So there's no – I don't know. That was just like, What? But anyways, so then apparently it faced three challenges at the post-secondary level, which uh, says a rare feat for any book. So uh, someone was assigned it to uh, read it in English class at University of Utah, and that student objected to its content. There was another challenge in South Carolina, and then later on, in 2015, so that's that's pretty recent, I guess, with with the uh, popularity of the musical. Uh, a college student said that it should be eradicated from the system at a college in California, and uh, I think this may have also been because there are four graphic novels in this particular course: Persepolis, <gasps> uh, Fun Home, mm-hmm. Why the Last Man. And the Sand, oh no, the Sandman Volume Two. Oh, I just saw the Doll's House, and I was like, not this again. Tom's going to go off on that. Uh, quoted as saying or calling it pornography and garbage. And Associate Professor Ryan Bartlett should have stood up the first day of class and warned us. So just to show that there's a lot of stuff uh, <laughs> coming yeah. out against it, and I think a lot of it is because. I'm going to hopefully people will understand when I'm I'm saying this term here, but sort of the other, 
uh, someone that's not uh-huh. like you. So I think these people probably don't have have very limited, if any, experience with people of the LGBTQ. And there is fear. There's fear there, and unfortunately, that fear is. I guess turning into sort of disgust and hate, and then um, it's it's acting out. So there's not any appreciation for the art form or looking at it. I mean, it's not it's not meant to be a gay graphic novel. I you know I think it's looking back and it's it's very much a family. It's family themed. It's this relationship between the father and the rest of his family, and of course, very much tied to that is his struggles of living in that time with homosexuality, and then her coming out. But I don't think you know. I don't think you can outright you know dismiss it without looking at many of the values that come from it. Yeah. So I, I just want to really, really briefly go back to the challenge in Utah, please, and then yeah, the challenge in South over. Carolina, yeah. because both of these, if you look at the details, they're both at least the the Utah one is somebody who's clearly pushing an agenda. Because I'll read it for you. I'll read your notes here. A student assigned to read the book in English class in the University of Utah objected to its content, was offered an alternate assignment in <laughs> accordance with the school's religious accommodation policy. The student accepted the alternate assignment, but also alerted a Salt Lake City area group called No More Pornography to the book's inclusion on the course syllabus. The group started an online petition and issued a press release calling for the university to remove the book from its curriculum. But the challenge progressed no further as the English department of the university affirmed that the single student who objected had been reasonably accommodated. So that is somebody pushing an agenda mm-hmm. because any time – and this has happened, I think – once in my entire teaching career so far where where we've uh, assigned a book well i've assigned a book personally me has had there was a book on the course somebody said their parents said i don't want my kid reading this book i gave them a different book and they were fine and there was nothing uh, nothing ever came of it and um because that was exactly what they were asking for and i was like yeah sure you can have an alternate assignment and if if i'm going to like get on my soapbox about it like that's how you should handle this like if if you are going to be teaching material that is going to be controversial in any way you should have a response available of there is an alternate assignment available if you do not want to read this book because you object to it on whatever grounds you object to and i will provide a different book uh, that is that is reasonable, but they're like, nope. I'm also oh, okay. I'll take the book, but I'm also going to go to this organization whose mission it is to censor. Mm-hmm. And and then the the one in South Carolina is even uh, South Carolina. Lana. I turned into, yeah, I turned into Brant, I turned into Blanche Devereaux <laughs> for a second. Uh. No, Arthur, um, in 2014. Okay, so. The book faced a greater challenge in South Carolina. The state legislature debated punitive budget cuts against the College of Charleston because it incorporated Fun Home into a voluntary summer reading program for incoming freshmen. The proposed state budget would have cut the College of Charleston's funding by $52,000, which is the exact amount needed for the annual College Reads program. In March the CBLEF joined a coalition led by the uh, NCAC, the, which is the National Coalition Against Censorship, to urge the uh, state Senate to reject the budget cuts. The Senate Finance Committee ha- rightly rejected them. However, this full Senate continued to debate the budget, coming up with a compromise. Quotes. I think they, they were their quotes. Instead of cutting the funds, the legislature proposes a budget provision that doesn't cut funding, but in an act of irony so classic it should be included in the dictionary. This is the CBLDF's words, not ours. Mm-hmm. The provision reallocated the funds to teach books that teach about the Constitution. You know, 
that gives you freedom of speech. And this is clearly a legislative body, again, pushing an agenda and wanting to, I don't know if they're lashing out at dirty liberals or whatever they're doing, but it's, again, it's a voluntary reading program. So the book was not being forced on anybody, mm-hmm. but it's like, well, your taxpayer dollars are going to this. And you're like, it's just, we see this time and time again with, with challenges to things mm-hmm. where a very reasonable solution is available and it's offered. And the person doesn't want to take that because they have something more in mind. Mm-hmm. What happens in the Sandman volume to the doll's house? It's been a long time since I've read the Sandman. It's been like 15. It's been almost 20 years since I sat down and read it all the way through. So I don't remember okay. off the top of my head. Sorry. And why The Last Man? I don't know. Volume I've one. I've never read that. I have, I've read the whole thing, which I highly recommend it. But it would um, – it's been, a, yeah, maybe seven years since I've read that one. But I don't remember anything crazy going on in the first one unless there's some nudity. But I don't know. I recommend Blankets. Yes. It's a pretty quick read. Yeah. And um, <laughs> even though it's thick. It's huge, but it, you read it quick. It goes okay. by very, very quickly. Okay. Um, I read it a few years ago. And, but this lady, they looked like comic books. Shut up, lady. <laughs> it's like the, this whole comic books are for children. This just feeds that whole. I hate it. Yeah. <laughs> I and hate I mean, it. I guess it's, it depends on where on the shelf, you know? It is put in graphic novels, but. I don't know. Do you think our librarians would speak up and say something? Like if a child tried to pick out Fun Home? Yes. Okay. I think so. Well, it's clearly in the it it's it's in the adult section. Okay. And it's, you know, it's not in the juvenile section and so they would definitely um yeah, I think I think you could you could easily flag. I don't know if you'd flag it, but you know what I mean. Yeah, you, sure. That'd be something like, like you know. Oh, maybe not. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, if it was a little kid and things yeah. like that. So. Okay. Well, shall we go on to the plot synopsis? Yes, I'm off my soapbox. I apologize for like commandeering your, that's fine. your section there, but it's just it's that's the more frustrating thing about these book challenges with me when it's like, sure. especially when it's like, hey, we gave you the the very thing you were asking for. Mm-hmm. You don't have to read this book, but now you're just like. Now you want to censor things yeah. that, that 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 gets me. Yep, gets me all riled up. Well, yeah, my school is going through a little bit of it. I think we've passed, but there's sort of a there is sort of a debate about the hate you give. Um, mm. So, but I think yeah. I've heard about that. I haven't read it yet. I'll have to. I'll have to I, yeah, I recommend it. And then we can we can talk about it. Okay. Well, let's let's get through this. Let's, let's all right. go through our plot synopsis. So the memoir starts with Allison as a young girl playing with her father whom she compares to both Daedalus, the genius inventor of Greek myth, and Icarus, Daedalus's son, who flew too close to the sun, S-U-N, on wings designed by his father and plummeted to his death. Allison details Bruce's obsession with restoring the family's old Gothic revival house, which Allison believes was largely motivated by his desire to keep up the appearance of being a good Christian family man, even as he was also secretly sleeping with some of his male teenage students. Allison then reveals that Bruce killed himself while she was in college, and though he lived through most of her childhood, she and the rest of the family felt his absence long before he was physically gone. Allison then delves into the details surrounding Bruce's death. Though there's no concrete proof that he killed himself, the circumstances preceding the incident, 
like Allison coming out as a lesbian a few months earlier, as well as Helen, Allison's mother, filing for divorce just two weeks before his death, make Allison relatively certain his death was a suicide. Allison gives a brief biography of her father, noting that he was born, lived, died, and was buried all within a two-mile radius in the town of Beach Creek, Pennsylvania. Allison notes that when Bruce was in the Army during World War II, he got stationed in Europe. There, he courted Helen by exchanging letters with her. Eventually, Helen moved to Europe to marry Bruce, but their time there was short-lived, as the couple had to return home to Beach Creek after the death of Bruce's father. Upon their return to the U.S., Bruce inherited the Bechtel family-run funeral home. So this is really get-fun home, funeral home. Shortly after this time, Allison and her brother Christian were born, and Bruce and Helen purchased the Gothic Revival house. As kids, Allison and her brothers had to do chores in the funeral home, which they nicknamed the Fun Home. As the nickname implies, their interaction with the Fun Home gave them a desensitized and often cavalier attitude towards death. Allison's grandma lived in the same building as the funeral home, and Allison and her brothers would often stay over and force grandma to tell the same story over and over about a toddler-aged Bruce getting stuck in the mud and being rescued by a mailman. Later... While standing over Bruce's grave, Allison has trouble believing her father is really down there, though she knows deep down that he's stuck in the mud permanently. Allison then wonders about her own coming out of the closet and how that might have impacted Bruce's suicide. Four months before, after realizing she was a lesbian by reading about homosexuals in a library book, Allison had written her parents a letter in which she came out. Allison notes how books were just as important to Bruce's intellectual development as her own, and she delves into his youthful obsession with F. Scott Fitzgerald. And uh, she also compares Bruce to Marcel Proust in the way they intermingle their lives with fiction in order to conceal their homosexual proclivities, as well as their mutual obsession with the beauty of flowers. As a kid, Allison viewed her father as a sissy and sought to fill in for the masculine presence she felt her family was missing. Thus, Bruce and Allison constantly engaged in a war of cross-purposes, where Allison tried to express her masculinity through Bruce, and Bruce tried to express his femininity through Allison. You can see a lot of this with the, the barrette, because he always forces that barrette on her. Allison then narrates an impactful incident when Bruce took the kids, as well as his young helper and presumably lover, Roy, on a trip up to the family cabin. There, the group toured a construction site where Allison saw a calendar tacked to the wall featuring a photo of a nude woman, causing her to then request to be called Albert instead of Allison by her brothers. Later, Allison discovers a photograph from this trip that Bruce had clearly taken of Roy, shirtless, lying in bed, which she examines closely. Shortly before Bruce's death, Allison narrates that she had an eerie dream in which the two of them tried to view a sunset, but Bruce, lagging behind, misses it. At Bruce's funeral, Allison becomes irritable and wishes she could speak the truth about Bruce's death, but instead keeps quiet. Allison wonders what might have happened if Bruce had been able to escape Beach Creek and live someplace else. She discusses the landscape around Beach Creek, which is both naturally beautiful and industrially polluted. As a young girl, Allison decided to write a poem about nature, and Bruce added a stanza onto it. Later, in a similar incident, Allison was drawing in a coloring book when Bruce got upset that she was using the wrong color, causing him to take over and shade it in for her. Allison's mother, Helen, was equally obsessed in her own artistic pursuits, which mostly concerned her acting and community theater plays. The house then fell to Allison like an artist's colony, with each member of the family compulsively absorbed in his or her own pursuits. Allison discusses the evolution of her OCD, huh, which entered her diary first in the form of self-doubt, such that she would write, I think, between each declarative statement. It then got so bad that she would scribble, I think, over each entry, causing Helen to take Allison's diary away until Allison decided to break her compulsions, <laughs> which she eventually did. 
As an adult, Allison warns that when she was 13, Bruce's secret almost surfaced when he offered a young boy a malt beverage or a beer while searching for the boy's older brother, who was most likely Bruce's lover. This proved to be a chaotic summer in the Bechtel household. All at the same time, Helen was working on her master's thesis and playing Lady Bracknell in a local production of The Importance of Being Earnest. Allison got her first period and decided to keep it a secret. Beach Creek was swamped with a horde of 17-year cicadas and, nationally, the Nixon-Watergate scandal was coming to a head. Then, a freak storm blew down old trees in the Bechtel's yard and rain through a window soaked Helen's thesis the night before it was due. Eventually, everything worked out. Bruce didn't have to go to jail and only had to see a therapist for six months, uh, whom, with whom he may have, yeah, well had some relations with. Uh, the play was well-received. Helen's thesis was accepted. Nixon resigned, and Allison finally told Helen about her period. Allison recounts an incident where she and her friend Beth dressed in boys' clothes, which Allison loved, though it was short-lived. Also, Allison notes that her diary entries became more and more untrustworthy until she eventually stopped writing in it at all. Allison recounts a time when Bruce took Allison and her brothers to New York for the Bicentennial of the United States. The weekend turned out to be gay all around, and that's in quotes. The family went to the ballet, saw homosexuals in Greenwich Village, and went to see the musical A Chorus Line. The next morning, Allison's brother John wandered off, got spoken to by a creepy man who seemed likely to be a sexual predator. I can't remember the title they used for that. It was something weird. Do you remember what they called that? He was, like, wandering around. He's like, these got to watch out for the blank. Oh, well. Maybe we'll come back to it. I found it ironic because that was basically Bruce was doing the same thing, but he was so worried about his son. Uh, but John manages to escape back to the apartment where they were staying, and then that night Bruce went off into the city by himself while the kids slept. Allison wonders what would have happened if Bruce hadn't died in 1980, but because of the AIDS epidemic, Allison didn't think that or doesn't think that Bruce would have made it much longer than he did. Allison remembers that as a young girl, Bruce's return home always signaled the end of her fun time with Helen and Christian. As a teenager, Allison was reluctant to bond with Bruce, but when she became a student in high school English class, the two ended up bonding over an interest in literature. Later, though, when Allison was at college, Bruce's overbearing interest in her classes led Allison to swear off English permanently. She only speaks in symbols. No, I'm just kidding. However, Allison eventually enrolled in a semester-long course on Bruce's favorite book, Ulysses. I remember you liked that so much, Tom. And she uses that book in Homer's Odyssey as a reference while narrating her own sexual quest towards fulfillment and understanding. Allison falls behind reading Ulysses. I don't even know how she passed that class. Because she's so obsessed with reading lesbian literature and exploring her relationship with Joan, her first girlfriend. Allison notes that this is when she decided to come out of the closet to her parents, which caused Helen in response to tell her the secret of Bruce's affairs and sexuality. One time before her father's death, when she returned home from college, Allison tries to connect with her father about being gay. On the way to a movie, Bruce is honest with Allison about dressing in girls' clothes and wanting to be a girl as a young boy, and Allison reminds him about how she used to dress like a boy. However, Bruce ends up confessing more about his feelings and sexuality than Allison does, so Allison ends up feeling like she is the parent during the exchange. After the movie, Bruce tries to take Allison to a gay bar, but they aren't allowed in because Allison is underage. Allison notes that she and her father were close, but not close enough, and they never discuss their sexuality again before Bruce's death. Allison then delves into the publication history of Ulysses, which was supported by three lesbian women who ended up seeing none of the prophets. Allison ends the story with an image of her jumping off a diving board into a pool as a young girl, with Bruce there to catch her. Allison narrates that Icarus and Bruce did hurtle into the sea, but Bruce was there to catch Allison when she leapt. Okay. 
Well, the first question that always makes the uh, host nervous is, did you enjoy this? I did. Um, I enjoyed it more the second time than I did the first time. And I didn't not like it the first time. <laughs> that was Lytotis. But I think what, what I did the first time was that I allowed the reputation of this book to precede it. So I went in thinking this is an important book and it's an important book and it's an important book and it's an important book. And I read it mm. and I was like, well, this is really well written and it's really well drawn. But I, I don't – I didn't – I felt a very detached from it. Like I was like I, – it, it, it didn't land the way I thought it would land. And it still didn't do that, but then again, you know, like I'm – then again, like I, I'm not one who – I'm not the type of person – I am not somebody who is going to straight up connect with Alison Bechtel in, in, in her experience in her memoir and feel like, oh my god, that's me yeah. because it's not. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, like once I put all of that sort of literary criticism, sociological stuff aside – and went in there just looking at this as somebody's memoir and then this coming of age story and all these other things. I'm like, oh, I said, not only did um, I once again say this is really well written and it's really well drawn, I also enjoyed it as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that's – I'm, I'm long-winded anyway here, but <laughs> I'm being long-winded about it because I think it's really important to do that when you have a work – that a lot of people, especially, you know, in, you know, of, of, you know, of a fandom or critics or whatever, hold it up because if, and, and it almost seems like they've put it on a pedestal and if you approach it on a pedestal, it's going to disappoint mm. you. And, and once you have to take it off the pedestal to read it. And I think that's something I just wanted to make, make sure I made that point because um, this is a book that could easily that easily does get put on a pedestal because it it, it deserves its reputation. Yeah. So it's an excellent, excellent book. And I wonder if it had as much of a reputation because I wouldn't know about it without the musical. So mm -hmm. I wonder if the the musical really bolstered it to a certain extent. That's very possible. Yeah, but I mean Bechtel's name obviously is a household name, a household item. Mm -hmm. And so uh, hopefully people are looking her up and and trying to figure her out. I agree that I think I liked it more the second time. I enjoyed it the first time. Maybe not as much as other graphic novels that I've done. You know, I think Persepolis is, is very high up there for me of uh, enjoyment level. I very much love that. And so yeah. it, it wasn't as high as Persepolis, but then when I was reading it this time after having seen the musical, I think I had a deeper appreciation. And also taking my time a little bit more and really looking at how, how you know, the events were, were going back and forth and, and how she was laying things out and the, the clever way, which we'll talk about, of, of her using actual firsthand accounts, uh, written accounts, like letters and journals and things like that, and changing from her style to a more realistic style, too, of drawing sometimes. Like when you see the photograph of Roy, you know, it's, it's drawn mm -hmm. like a photograph, or I think her school picture, something like that. So I, yeah. I think it's it's really well done and uh i enjoy it i like the, the the color scheme probably is not the right word but i mean it's very minimal and really it's just sort of this this gray blue that you have yeah. things but i really like it i i think black and white really works well for persepolis i don't think that it would have worked for this book i'm glad that she had that that steel blue coloring that that went with it 
March had sort of a yeah. It's black and white, but there's sort of it like almost where it was almost like a a painted not painted black and white, but like there were there were touches of almost like watercolor effect in, in some cases mm-hmm. here and there, um, which I thought served that artwork really really well. Um, no, I really did like that color scheme in this book. Yeah. Um, I am not of the opinion that all comics have to be in colors. So. Yeah. And and unlike that woman in Missouri, yes, this is a comic. Um, <laughs> oh man, uh, Chicken Hawks is what the is the title I was looking for. Chicken okay. Hawks are guys who prey on young boys. Yeah. But apparently, the irony—well, I'm sure it's not lost on adult Allison, but I think it was yeah. lost on the people at that time and, young, and on the father. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I had to look something up too, but this is this is a few years before in 1979, a little boy who was six years old named Eaton Pats. Uh, went missing in um, New York City in I think the Greenwich Village area and it was like a national case and I think it was one of the first national missing children probably I think it's one of the cases that was like led to the idea of putting missing children's faces on milk cartons Mm. in the 80s him and um, the the other very very high profile case would be in the mid-east would be Adam Walsh, the uh, the son of uh, John Walsh from America's Most Wanted. That was 70, Eaton Pats was 79, this was 76. So I was just wondering, like, you know, if I was trying to remember, like, when that was, because it would have been in people's, like, consciousness, at least in the city, mm-hmm. of, like, weird, you know, weird people and people to watch out for yeah. and stuff. Yep. Well, I wanted to talk about first the the structure of it. So the narrative is, as I mentioned before when I was talking about the musical, it's nonlinear. It's moving between the past, the distant past, the more recent past, and of course, I guess her present as she's writing it. And it often revisits the same incidents over and over again and very important incidents. For example, his, we'll say, we'll put quotes there, even though it's pretty probable, his suicide. Uh, So Mm -hmm. it does always go back to that. That's very much almost the anchor point. How do you think, or in what ways does this structure, this nonlinear structure, impact the story? I think it gets us in her head in the present, and it almost makes it's not this isn't a stream of consciousness novel, but there is sort of a stream there of like you feel that as she goes further and further along and keeps coming back and then goes along and keeps coming back, she's realizing more and more. And she's shedding light on more and more, not because she's doing that to you as the reader to keep you in the dark or be mysterious, but she is coming to her own conclusions and she's accepting her own feelings or her own thoughts Mm -hmm. and things. And we are experiencing that with her. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, I was sort of thinking about Virginia Woolf a little bit uh, because she's very much one of those stream of consciousness (laughs) writers where it's just sort of flowing out there i yeah i agree that i think as she's in the in the present or i guess we could say recent past right now anyways she as she's writing i think she's thinking of things and as they come to her she's she's making those connections and i also like that it's not you know point a to point b because i think it would be a little boring i think the way that you see her writing you also get to see what mattered to her 
I, I think those important events that the ones are the ones that she keeps coming back to and you get more of a sense of who Allison is uh, which I think you know is what you're saying as well but I think it would really change if it were just uh, from point A to point B I think our perception of who Bruce Bechtel is would be very different because in, in this way that it's non-linear you get to see different sides of him but I think maybe if it were linear you would see maybe less of a three-dimensional Bruce Bechtel do you think what do you think about that I think you're right and I think the fact that the revelation about his um, about his homosexuality of the affairs he was having and then the the suicide if it wasn't such a very straight linear progression mm-hmm. it almost be cliche in a way like you know it, it like like okay i'm building up to this and building up to this and now oh you got to go back and think about all the hints i dropped and stuff like that and we we've seen that many many times mm-hmm. in this case she is and she's not going in the opposite direction either She's not doing the whole, um, you know, okay, we're going to start with the suicide. Now this is we all discover right. all the things. Yeah. This is her going back and forth yep. and back and forth and back to the one point and forth. And she doesn't keep going back. She keeps going back to the same points, but then she goes to other points in her life where she doesn't revisit those. Yeah. And But it's it's when it she's constructing it as she goes because she's trying to piece things together. Almost like you do start to think about you know, what a person was like when you were thinking a lot about them or you're yeah. thinking about yourself and, you know, yeah. reconsidering your perception of things. Yeah, and she has such a freedom to choose what she wants to choose, you know. I mean, her OCD versus, like, her first period, things like that, are, there's mm-hmm. not much of a connection there necessarily, but there is the way that she connects it and she's able to explore that because I think the journal very much is something that ties them together. So she gets to look at different episodes, which is why probably it is a memoir rather than an autobiography because an autobiography, I guess, would be more thorough and maybe more straight in a line. (laughs) But memoir, she's got that freedom. Most of it is actually set in a relatively small town in Pennsylvania. Do you think the setting affects the story? I think it does. I looked this up on the map. What was the name of the town again? Beach Creek? Yes. Let's do it I'm now. on Google, Google Maps now, like that. Yeah, yeah I'm Google Mapping this. Beach Creek, Pennsylvania is 209 miles away from here. Come on, pull it up. <laughs> so annoying. I'm seeing I see it's a little gerrymandered. Too bad they don't say where the Bechtel home is. If you zoom in, you see that they have a Brothers Pizza. It's northeast of It's northeast of Pittsburgh. It's about 156 miles away from Pittsburgh. So it's about a three-hour drive from Pittsburgh. I don't remember what county it's in, but I'm pretty sure this is the area that some of my friends who are who, who know uh, Pennsylvania pretty well will will sometimes refer to it as Pennsylvania. Oh. Yeah, so it's a, it's a very, very small area. And I think that does, especially... In the '60s and '70s, mm-hmm. that would certainly affect the you know the, the story. Yes, and that you are dealing with you're dealing with a mentality that is that is a lot less tolerant than say, well, Greenwich Village, which is where they go to in '76. Sure. You know, and and some of the other um, and some some of the more other more cosmopolitan places in the United States, the world. So yeah. 
it definitely is. Um, and especially the fact that that's his childhood home and his family home. And so he is known in the town. They, every, he grew up around all these people too, yeah. so that's another thing. Yeah, yeah. So you, it, small town also means gossip, right? And so people might mm-hmm. know everyone else's business, and not too much time was was focused on that necessarily. But the fact that the you know the kid just looking out the window knew that called the police right away because it was you know respectful with his with his younger brother, whether or not he was um, his lover at the time or how he knew that I think goes to show. So what's interesting is um, the mentality, obviously, I, I, I guess we could say closed minded because they're not going to have many experiences, but it's interesting because Bruce somehow does I mean, the, the gay bar. I don't know. I mean, they have a gay bar in that little community or how far did yeah, they have cool. to dry out or drive out to get to that? Yeah. And I don't have a copy in front of yeah. me to see if she if she makes that distinction of where the gay bar actually is. Yeah. I'll have to. Ooh. Let's see here. It says no. Nope, that's it. Oh yeah. At the end of the week, we went to a movie together. So they went to a movie, and then I don't know. My oh my bar is what it was called. I don't know if that actually exists, but. Yeah, local. It says notorious local night spot. So that's that's sort of interesting, as well as the fact that he is able to get some lovers. But at the same time, I think it was closed off enough that Allison wasn't really able to, I think, understand her identity until she got to college when she had those yeah. experiences. So it's it's. I think it's a very interesting town. I think you have. Uh, either you know both worlds going on there but yeah i, I guess rural <laughs> and small town you know obviously yeah. creates some conflict potentially i grew up in a town that wasn't rural because it's i grew up in the south shore of long island i grew up in the suburbs clearly suburban but it was a very small suburban town that has that odd dichotomy to it as well because um Many gay people who have been to Fire Island have gone through my town because my town of Sayville is where the ferries run to the two biggest gay communities on Fire Island. Mm. And there was a gay bar in town for years, decades even. And I think that that closed down uh, about maybe a decade ago. I think the I don't know if the owners retired or sold the business or what. Now it's like a bank encountering the amount of homophobia among people in the town it's this weird sort of like it was only in the last maybe 10 or 15 years where i've seen like outward you know um more acceptance of of the of the lgbtq community in the town when i've gone back of where there's you know they're on pride during pride week they actually you know they'll, they'll fly a rainbow flag and they'll try to encourage people who would normally just blow through the town on their way to the to the ferries mm-hmm. to stop in the town and spend some time and you know <laughs> buy things from the stores and um but like you know when i was in high school you know there were a few people who were out and this was the early 90s too where people coming out was still like a big deal you know i have i have gay lesbian and trans students now who are out mm. and and that was something in, in in ways that are way more confident than, than than most of the people i know who are gay now that i went to high school with who were you know closeted back then and um because mostly boys 
would tell gay jokes and there was this idea, this misunderstanding of things. And then you had it. So there, so I recognize a lot of like, th- this is where I actually do connect a little with the book because I do recognize this town. Even if I'm not from that town, I do recognize this type of town mm-hmm. in, in my own life. Yeah. Well, I just looked up and there are two bars in Beach Creek currently linger in tavern and uh copperhead. So I don't know if either of those have, Change. Linger in tavern sounds like the dew drop in, you know. The dew drop in, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk about the funeral home and her father's job as an undertaker. How do you think sort of this constant presence of literal death contribute to the story? This is where I think she writes it really well because she could have really played this with a heavy hand, you know. Yeah. And like beating you overhead with the obvious, you know, symbolism of the funeral home, the death, my father's dead, you know, and she doesn't, there's an, there's almost like an easiness around it that the death of her father doesn't seem as outwardly tragic until you really start to examine things more. I don't know. I, I, I'm trying to remember like what her reaction is to the death of her father. I don't think she's been so desensitized to death at that point or anything. But there's a, there's a certain like. But there's that weird moment where she and her brother are laughing. Yeah. Do you remember that? So I. I, I yeah. yeah. I think they have seen so many that I don't know. It, it seems like you know it's another dead body, and I think to a certain extent, until she's standing over his grave, maybe she doesn't make that connection that oh, my father's really dead. And I think part of it is also his absence, both when he was in the home and when he wasn't, because he was he was seldomly, I think, acting as a father and a loving father towards her. So perhaps it was just like, well, it feels the same as it did when I was growing up. Yeah. And it's interesting that I'm trying to figure out what panel that you had on display when you were on the bike. <laughs> was it the... Was it the was it her was it her and her girlfriend in college um <laughs> going down on one another or was it um the scene in the mort in the funeral home where her father oh, is the, the, prepping the, the body man. where the where the naked man is sitting yeah. there and it's just it was the former i don't i mean i may have hid cuz the wee wee was there but i think i think it was probably yeah the the sex stuff is yeah. what i was hiding on my bike i'm like oh i hope no one walks by yeah. I, I, you know, I also was wondering, like, if the constant presence of dead bodies, but also the constant presence of just the naked dead body. Yeah. Because she would help her father prepare mm-hmm. the bodies, and you know, she comes in, and you know, I don't, I don't know. Well, I don't know. It's like you know, is that the first time she'd ever seen a penis? And it's like, and it's mm-hmm. you know, and out, and it's there, and it's sure. just sitting there in this guy's dead body yeah. in the same way. But there's there's something very cold and scientific about that. Yeah. But I do think – I think you might be incorrect. Wasn't that the only time that she was actually brought into that room? Mm. Because he asked her in I there and think she's so. like, why, why did he ask you to go in there? And then was it say it felt like a test? Da, 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 da. Yeah, but then he like – he essentially just needed her to hand him something the or scissors, something like that. Yeah. It was something, like, yeah, it was it was like something really, really uh, you know, menial. Yeah. Because yeah. I don't know if she was ever involved in, in the um, – they were always, always cleaning and setting up things. But I don't know if she ever did the, the bodies except for that moment. But, yeah. 
they make up the bodies too, though. I mean, it's part of being yeah. mortician, yeah. and, and perhaps there's some symbolism in yeah. that, and the idea of a mask, and the idea of what you're putting on, mm-hmm. whether it be the house, your appearance, or or whatever. Yeah. That there's an artifice there that they're creating for the for the sake of the mm-hmm. of the of the family of the mourners. Yeah. The yeah, I wonder if her life would have been different if if she hadn't lived in the fun home or if her father hadn't been an undertaker. And part of me thinks that it wouldn't have because I, I think that was just sort of clothing to the situation that was already there. I mean, it's it's very uh-huh. much, I think, the environment that Bruce was creating for the family. And it just so happened to be in a funeral home and, you know, the, the wacky stuff that was going on there. But they were I, – I think they would play games and have fun no matter what the, the, fun, the environment would have been like. <laughs> oh, my janitor friend just told me to go home. Um, because <laughs> he's out there. So yeah, they they work until like ten thirty on board. I see you. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Um, oh no, I can't go home because I'm on a call. Yeah, I'll go home soon. Okay, see ya. <laughs> um. I'll put that in the boobers, I guess. Uh, it's sweep, sweep. It's a cameo. <laughs> there you go. He gets a cameo. Yeah. Oh, man. And and I just wonder how seriously he takes it. I mean, obviously he does his job, but mm-hmm. it's clear. I feel like he's so restless. Like, what does he, you know, what does he really want? He very much likes, I think, fixing up that house. He wants it to be a historical site. Yes. But you just wonder what part this funeral home plays. Is it just sort of duty, the duty of a son, you know, coming home and, and pulling that up? That's sort of, that's one of the things that I do wonder about Bruce. Like, what part of his life does that sort of play? But yeah, I think uh, overall, besides these weird little moments and and that weird scene, obviously the laughing, which you know people do laugh at really weird times. I think it's just. Um, Sometimes I scoff at, like, really inappropriate times because I'm like, oh, of course, you know, this happened, the worst time of all it happening. But, <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it's yeah. a natural reaction yeah. to things where I think that a societal norm, especially around death, societal norm dictates that you express your grief in a certain way, not understanding that the human mind and human heart and human emotions are much more complicated and we all have our different ways of coping. And sadness and anger are the accepted ones. But like, you know, I have a morbid sense of humor sometimes. Yeah. You know, and, and I can very often keep it to myself when I'm in polite company, you know, around death. But dark humor is a coping mechanism. Yeah. You know, and like things like that. So I, I, I yeah. So I'm right there with you. Okay. We'll scoff together. Yeah, we scoff together, yeah. So connecting to that and talking about... Bruce's obsessive remodeling of their Victorian home, Bechtel actually goes to great lengths to compare her father and, by extension, herself to various figures of literature. We have uh, a big theme was at the very end with Ulysses, which I laughed when I read it the second time because I know that you don't care for that. Or I, I don't know if you've read it, but I remember you said I you read like two it. chapters okay. and gave up. <laughs> gave up. Okay. I think it's on my list. I'm like, well, I guess I got to read it sometime. But how does this affect this this use of uh, connecting and comparing to outward out, outside people? How does it affect the story and how does it contribute to its themes? 
First of all, Ulysses is not just another podcast episode and it's entire podcast. <laughs> by yeah, going by point like, by point. Is like, it longer yeah. than the Odyssey or is it isn't it purposely supposed to be like the same length? I maybe okay. I don't know. Okay. Um I'm not Clearly you're such a fan. Yet. And I and in your summary it, it said Gothic Revival and I'm looking at Victoria and I'm gonna err on this part of like you and I'm gonna well, say that I'm wrong. wrong yeah. But either way, yeah. it's it's an old house. It is, yeah. <laughs> It's an old house, and the thing that the thing that just this gets me about this is the house is not a home to them because he's mm. so like fastidious about right. it, and he's so like it's almost like this is his OCD. You know, she it was she develops OCD later on, and in the in the graphic novel, this is almost like his because he's he's so fixated on on like restoring this house and being like like you said like a museum having it be like a museum yeah. piece in a sense and to the point where like she doesn't like the d- decor in her room mm-hmm. and he's just like well tough you know <laughs> tough yeah. you know this is what's appropriate this is what it's going to be and you know when you're a kid when you're a teenager mm-hmm. your room is like your domain yeah, yeah. it's 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 you like you can put your own posters up. You know, your parents might have paint. You sometimes, sometimes people get to paint their own bedrooms. I was never allowed to. Mm. You might have wallpaper up, and it's your it's your place. And and he he is not providing that place, which is like then they go essentially live at the funeral home. You know, like you know. And so I was wondering, like, is this a um, expression of him, his OCD, like an OCD thing with him, and also like. This weird way of like channeling this repression that he has, mm-hmm. which I know the other way, of course, is channeling it into these affairs he's having with these young men. Sure. But this is like all part of this, all part of this way. This is all coming out where he is. He is not out. And isn't there? A, there's a plot point in there. They were living over in. Were they living over in Europe at one point? The Helen and Bruce were, yes. Yeah, and then he had to come back to correct um, because his father Pennsylvania. He had a heart his attack father, and then passed away. Yeah, and so so like this is his way, and and so you know perhaps we were just talking about this. Perhaps he felt you know this is like I feel trapped. I need this is this is the only outlet I have. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's so weird of how it's like it's one thing to have a hobby as your outlet. And it's another thing to become so fixated on it and so obsessed with it. Then, like, you've got this abusive behavior toward his kids mm-hmm. and toward his wife. And so, yeah, I don't know. Um, comparing to the various figures of literature, I was reading some reviews of this. And this is one of the biggest criticisms of it. Like, she's almost, like, going too far with that. Mm. Which comparing to the... the, the, the blah, Hello? To you. <laughs> Odysseus, Telemachus, Daedalus, Agrest, you know, sure. like the, these fathers and sons, which I found interesting. Although there isn't a ton of father daughter classic literature out there compared to the father son, mm-hmm. I think it drives him as a character. I think it 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 makes you less sympathetic toward him because he's so fixated that like the problems that cause him to kill himself 
many, many cases, problems that if he didn't cause them, he exacerbated them by his behavior, by his obsessions, by his neglect of his his family, et cetera, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe, and and maybe the the theme here is about, you know, your search for your own identity and, and what happens to you when you ignore it or you try to mm-hmm. um, deny it. That's my shot in the dark. Okay. So as you were talking, I was thinking about the musical again. This is going to go back to this a lot. But the second song they sing is called Welcome to Our House on Maple Avenue. And they're all, they're sort of preparing for a woman to come through the house. And it is gothic. I actually looked it up in the book, so it is gothic. Okay. But Allison says, uh, this is actually the repeat, the repeat refrain, but she says, Welcome to our house, sing, sorry. Welcome, welcome to our house on Maple Avenue. See how we polish and we shine. We rearrange and realign. Everything is balanced and serene, like chaos never happens if it's never seen. And that really impacted me a great deal when I was listening to that because I think that's very much what's happening here, that he's able to focus on this and make it perfect and inwardly and outwardly the same because he's unable to do that with his life. He's pretending one thing and he's living, you know, uh, another thing. And he's got this family and he's also trying to perfect that. But obviously he's having this inward struggle. So it's just not working. So I think it's easier for him to manipulate the house than he is his own life and his family. Regarding the connections with the literature, I think she gets that from her dad. Because when he was overseas and writing to... Helen and she sent him books and he got really into I think I guess it was F. F. Scott Fitzgerald's biography then he really started Mm -hmm. to compare himself to F. Scott Fitzgerald and and his life so I almost think is sort of passed down this idea of comparing one's life to this great author and I I think it's also a bit of a um, almost a, a brainwash too from Bruce because Allison has been growing up with this literature buff. She took him in class, and, you know, he would recommend books and things like that. So I think a lot of it is coming just from living with him and literature being a big part of their shared life to a certain extent, but then it got to be a little too overbearing there. But I think it's just it just happens, you know. She's, she's comparing it to them. I kind of like it. I think if it were to go on, like, every single chapter – or every single vignette had a connection to a piece of literature, then I'd be like, that is too much. But the fact that I think it, it begins and ends with, uh, well, it begins with Daedalus, and it ends, yeah, it ends with Daedalus as well, and then Ulysses carries through. I, I like that it has, has those moments, but I think it could get to be too much, but I think she, she handles it well. And it's not out of character, you know, so it doesn't seem forced. Sure. The criticism that it was too heavy-handed, yeah. or like used too much, but I agree with you. I think it's it's used at appropriate times and appropriate places, and it's never. She never seems to be forcing it in a way that it doesn't doesn't fit. I mean, you know, I, I see the I see the the comparisons to Daedalus. I see that whole idea of the the whole idea of the separation that happens in the Odyssey, anyway. Yeah. You know, with between the father and the yep. and the son, Odysseus, the original absentee father in of literature. Um, 
And there's something to be said about that. You know, how much was he there? It's not until he's an adult or not. So it's not until she's an adult that they connect on that level. And it's really not much of a, you know, it's, it's, there's sort of a connection because they, you know, they, he tries to take her to a, a bar and, and they have that, you know, when she's underage, um, She's underage, so they. I, I've completely lost my train of thought. Um, all right, How dare you? Going back. Sorry, going back. So it's not until she's a little older uh-huh. where they go to the movie in the gay bar. Oh, and, um, really try to go to the gay bar. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, she's, uh, she's underage. But, like, you know, he confesses things to her. Then, like you said in the, in the uh, summary, Allison ends up feeling like she is the parent during the exchange. And it's... It's almost like one of the few times it seems like they do understand each other on some level or she understands him a little bit more. But like you said, they were close, but not close enough. And it was just sort of like that was the one moment they had. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if that made any sense. I was like in one direction and I was trying to make sure that I had my facts straight. And then all of a sudden I'm in another direction. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about firsthand Sources. Uh, I mentioned this a little earlier. Allison brings in letters, journals, and photos to help document her upbringing. How do these different forms of media contribute to the authenticity of the book and also influence the art? Well, as an English teacher, yes, you as a Latin <gasps> teacher, but yes. somebody who also studies um, historical texts oh. on some level, because you do the Aeneid. And, and other things. Yep. Primary sources, first-hand accounts, are always looked for, yep. valued. So I appreciate her using that because she is doing essentially her research for this. And trying. it's almost like she's trying to verify that the memories she has are not false or not, not that she's lying, but that they're... Um, She's misremembering things, you know, and so she's making that effort. And that also connects us as the reader Mm -hmm. in that, you know, here's all this stuff that I dug up and this is what I saw. And because we would all do the same thing, you know, you know, we're you and I are not young people like like the students we teach. We're not we're not teenagers. Mm -hmm. So we have parents who are, um, you know, they're. They're middle past middle age, um, and you know mine are in their early seventies. And um, you know you don't think about it on a regular basis. Hopefully, um, I don't. But there, every once in a while, the thought creeps into your mind that your parents will pass away one day, and then you are one of the things you probably will end up doing is going through their stuff. And over the course of going through the stuff, because I remember my grandparents died, and you know, and over the course of years of cleaning things out and whatever you know and, and things being passed around and you go through old family photo albums and you think you start to find these things and you start piecing together a person that you only knew in one context and i think that's what she's doing here mm. she's piecing together this person both her or two people maybe she's piecing together herself in addition to her father in terms of these letters journals photos etc and um in the same way that you would if you if you had a relative who died or somebody gave you a bunch of old stuff from an old family member and it was their letters, their journals, their photographs, you know, and, and all these personal personal items. Mm, yeah. I think, 
You know, it's interesting because when we talked about Persepolis way back when, we mentioned the fact that some people may not like that graphic novel as much because it's written by someone who's looking back pretty far into the past. Mm -hmm. And so how reliable uh, is she as a narrator is this book and, and things like that. And that's something with memoirs that you can, you're really, you're trusting the the author with this. And so I think that Alison Bechtel really knows this, I think, going into it. And using that helps, I think, grant this a lot of authenticity. I mean, there's so many moments. It's not like she's documenting every little thing. But to see that pop in there, to see that picture of Roy, you're like, wow, you know, this stuff is really happening. And Mm -hmm. you not only see it in the moment, but you're also seeing it through Allison's eyes. Uh, Some of them, I will say, were hard to read, mainly Bruce's. Allison's cracked me up as they got worse and worse with that little, uh, (laughs) the I think turned into that weird, like, carrot thing. (laughs) But, yeah, you just get, I I really like that. I I really like that you get to to see this. Um, It's it's strange. It's a little strange because you're used to the art, and then all of a sudden you're given something that's more realistic and also something that um, it's not just typeface, but... It's, it's cursive and it's handwritten. But I, I think yeah. it adds something a little special, and I think it, it makes you trust Allison more as narrator because she she has that. So I like it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And you're right, the, the, the picture of Roy and, and some of the other things, because they're done in the way they are, mm-hmm. they're really striking. Yeah, yep. And it's just not, another, not just another panel on the page. Yep. Well, we're winding down here. Now we're going to get into some some tougher questions, two of them in particular. We'll start with this one first. Uh, obviously, we, we, we talked about this during the challenge section of this podcast, but it's been challenged potentially mainly because of its LGBTQ themes. Uh, there are characters having sex, so you could just go along that, but of course they are uh, you know, female characters having sex with each other, so I, I think people um, are obviously upset about that. So in what ways is this public discomfort with sexual identity similar or different to the discomfort of the characters in the actual memoir? I think that their discomfort with this comes from the fact that I don't think normal is the right word, but there is something so very straightforward and maybe even normal about the way that the sex in this book is depicted. Mm -hmm. It's not glamorized. It's just there. Right. So like, matter of fact, almost it's not pornography because the whole purpose of pornography is to get you off. You know what I mean? Like there's a, there's a salaciousness and there's, it's tantalizing. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, you know, like, and, and the way things are presented in that is to make you aroused. This is, that's not the point of the nudity Mm -hmm. or the, you know, the, the, the one place where it was supposed to tantalize somebody was like in say the photo of Roy and things like that sure. where it's like you know obviously there's sure. these, but but that was done as a plot device for the man who you know who was for her father but you know like when she's when she's having a lot of sex with her girlfriend in college mm-hmm. as as one does um, and like you know I just want to stay in bed and have sex with you all the time I don't want to go to class as you do 
um, it's not – you're right. It's presented a very matter-of-fact like it's normalizing a behavior that people who do not agree with the lifestyle, that makes them even more uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. because the idea that this can be matter-of-fact among people who are normal. So like there – so like you know, when your view of what gay is – is like the scene in the book in 1976 in Greenwich Village mm. where it's gay, you know, sure. and it's like <laughs> gay, capital G, capital A, capital I, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. It's gay. That's not – that's one scene in the book and it's like such a stereotype and like she's discovering where the stereotype essentially comes from. But like when you go back to this little town, it's like that's not the stereotype, mm-hmm. you know. So it's it's presenting her sexuality in a way yeah. that is normal, and then it is showing her father in a way that is um, sad, mm-hmm. because he is having sex with. I don't know if they're underage; they're teenagers, but I don't know what the age of consent is. He's not he's not a pedophile. There's a difference between you know. Well, I um, think they're under eighteen. They are under eighteen, but he's not like they're not twelve year olds, is what you mean. Yeah, they're not they're not boys. They are they are you know they're they're older teenagers. So, and and we can get into and and if you want, we can get into that. I, I don't I don't know what she is. She's implying she's showing that matter of factly. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there's a power thing there. I don't know if there's a a something. You try to psychoanalyze him and why he is not just having affairs with other men. Mm-hmm. All the time. It's a very Greek thing to do. Is always an older man and a younger man. That is a good point. So that is a good point. Yeah. If it's sort of the same. Plato symposium. Yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You've read the symposium. Yeah. Um, that that gets uncomfortable. <laughs> um, but but yeah, I think that's one of it. I think that's one of the things. I think that because like there's a certain there's a certain segment of this population that do not want. Um, you know, gay themed things out there in the popular culture or in the culture or in libraries or in schools or anything, because they really are, they really are afraid, like genuinely have this ridiculous fear that like, it's going to turn people gay, Mm. you know, that like in the same way that discussing sex is going to make want teenagers want to have sex. And you're like, Teen, or teenagers are going to want to have sex anyway, whether you discuss it or not, you know, in a class, you know, whatever. And I think that's one of the fears. It's like, you know, if you're showing this person who grows up to essentially being a healthy adult and with healthy relationships on or off or whatever, and you see their journey of self-discovery, oh no, you might be identified, you might identify it, you may catch gay, you know, or something like that. So that's where this, that's where this comes in. They're like, you know, they're so against this they're so homophobic. Mm, yeah. Yeah, and I think I don't want to add too much to to what you're saying there, but I think also the discomfort of the family, uh especially Helen, I think mm-hmm. uh it matches that, but it but it matches the discomfort level, but I think it's just a different type of discomfort because she's living in this scenario with potentially I I don't know if I can call him abusive but you know there there are those moments there are a couple snapshots that you're like you know he's clearly not acting very loving towards Helen and then you have also Allison is not necessarily like diving in feet first into being a lesbian I think there is some hesitancy 
if only on you know page 214 here um which mm-hmm. is the, the scandalous page so i can't look at it too much but um at one point she says in true heroic fashion i moved toward the thing i feared and it it's the hoo-ha but uh you know so it's not like she's you know because this <laughs> this is new and and uncharted it's called the vagina Ooh, how dare you use its clinical term um <laughs> so you know it's i think there's discomfort all around i'm not sure what i guess you know the discomfort of bruce's being unable to be his true self to a certain mm. extent but also if you were the neighbors and the, and the people surrounding the Bechtel family I, I guess you'd be on the side of the uh, people who have tried to challenge this book as well oh, I grew I grew up around what will people think God <laughs> um, I uh, I also wonder like th- that's the other thing like she she doesn't come like motoring out of the closet no you know <laughs> she's like She's very hesitant. Like, she knows, but she's, like, really – she is. She's really scared of it. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, that is a natural way of approaching sex in general. You're – I mean, whether you're – whether what your orientation, et cetera, is, like, there is something very scary about exploring sex without getting into too much, you know graphic sex and detail about it but there is you know it's it's like if you take it seriously and you're a type of you're a type of person and she does obviously take things very seriously mm-hmm. you will and and you do hold the the act of 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 sex up as this as something that is important it's going to be scary mm-hmm. um you're going to want to do it but it's going to be scary on some level sure. and again it's really normal and i think that's what scares a lot of people about it it's like you know her her like some of the thoughts she has and some of the things she has even though she's really discovering a totally complete different sexuality than like the one you know that mine that is where i can relate to certain things that you know that fear the things like that and i think when you are again when you're presenting it in that way that's that 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 bothers people Mm -hmm. because it's not (laughs) because it's not shown as anything that's dangerous Mm -hmm. And it's not shown as anything that's um, wrong. Now with him, it's a little different. There are things in in his relationships with these men and these boys that are shown as dangerous. And on some level, somebody around there does think you know, it's wrong, or there's there's a there's a wrongness to the way he's approaching it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Well, winding down. Uh, this is a tough question. Do you find? Bruce or Helen, a more sympathetic character between the two parents. And we haven't talked about Helen very much. We, we really haven't. No. What's your take on Helen? <laughs> so the reason why I'll give you a, I guess, uh, behind the curtain uh, question. Why I'm coming up with this question is with the musical. I had lunch afterwards with an assistant stage manager who um, was a former student of mine so we we were discussing it and she was saying that the director went in wanting to cast more of a sympathetic light on Bruce because she sort of had negative uh, feelings towards the mother because why didn't Helen leave was was her big thing uh so i think she thinks she thinks negatively towards her and now in in here i think that 
the Bruce is portrayed, I think, more negatively. But Helen's not necessarily cast in a positive light. But I feel for Helen, I mean, they're both in a bad situation. You feel bad for Bruce because he's living in a time and he can't be the person that he is. He can't He can't really be out and out gay. He is behind yeah. there, but he's very much suffocating. Mm-hmm. You feel bad for Helen because to a certain extent this is this is a bit of a, an abusive relationship. Um, I, I don't know how much love is there at all. And she's sort of throwing herself into other things. But really if she left with her three children, you know, what could she what could she really do? I mean she does end up filing for divorce. Uh, it finally is enough, but her children are grown. So yeah. I, I think that's sort of the safe time. But you wanna have both parents in the house, ideally. So I feel mm-hmm. like she's backed up against the wall. She could, you know, take her children and leave, but then how is she the livelihood? You've got all those questions. So I, I do feel bad for her. I can't vilify Bruce. I think he does some shady things, but I do feel bad for him. But I also think you can't just throw Helen away and say, well, she could have left him because there's a lot of stuff that's going on. You could say that about a lot of relationships, but there's a lot of things that you have to think through before you leave somebody. And and condemning her for not leaving him is such a like looking it through a lens of now type of thing. It's like or or that sort of like. So I hate when people do that because it's like it's way more as she shows in the book is way more complicated than that. And you know, take into account the time in which this a lot of the backstory of this was going on, where you're talking. He killed himself what in like 1980. I think so. Yeah. So you're talking about the the 60s into the 70s where, you know, divorce happened, but you're still talking about a time where people stayed together. Sometimes they stayed together for the kids. And she doesn't have as much insight into their relationship as, as I remember. Like, we get some things through, like, you know, how their relationship started. And, you know, perhaps, and this is me just, this is conjecture. Perhaps the um, the fact that she had the kids and she had the master's she's working on a master's thesis through quite a bit of it, right? Yeah. And she had other things to occupy to, to do while married to him buffered that. So that maybe if the desire to leave wasn't there, she never acted on it because she had that buffer, and they took the the buffer was taken away as time went on she realized she just finally was just like, can't take this anymore. She met with reality or what it was. Um, in fact, didn't Beck, I think Bechtel did a sequel. She does. And I think it's her relationship with Helen with her mother. Yeah. yeah. So, so we don't get, I don't think, I don't think if this, especially since we know there is another graphic novel out there that is specifically focused on her relationship with Helen. Mm-hmm. I don't think we can condemn Helen in this book. Mm. Because I don't think we know enough about her. She certainly does come off as cold mm-hmm. and guarded. And, you know, and, and I see that perhaps that's because of years of having to deal with this man who is a very narcissistic. He's narcissistic as well. I mean, there's you can feel sympathetic toward him, but I don't think I like him, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. And I don't necessarily – the only person I truly like in this entire graphic novel is Alison Bechdel. So, you know, yeah. I mean, which does she hopefully wanted you to, you know. Yeah. She wanted you to like her as the protagonist. But, like, you know, I, I don't 
I don't think either one of them is more sympathetic than the other. I think you can really look at them. I think to, to portray him, I don't know if it was like, you know, cause are you, are, if you portray her as cold and him as sympathetic, are you enforcing the stereotype, the cliche of like the henpecked husband and the bitchy wife, you know, that sort of thing too. I mean, Oh man, it's tough. Families yeah. are complicated. Well, my final mm-hmm. question, I, I thought about this as I was reading. And have you ever read The Glass Castle? I have heard of it. Okay. I have never read okay, it. Okay, that's okay. I've heard good things about it, though. Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> I say that by, with a caveat of, like, some really, really bad stuff happens. But what's interesting about The Glass Castle is... And obviously we're not talking about the glass castle on here, but I just needed to give you a, a frame of why I'm asking this question. Is that in the beginning, as a child, the author whose name is uh, Jeanette, at the beginning w- w- in her in her memoir, uh, very much dotes on her father and loves him. But then as she starts to grow older, she realizes sort of the problems and that no, he wasn't acting or uh, treating the children as they should have been treated. And then, of course, very much as an adult, like seeing really how dysfunctional that family was. And so I wondered if, because this is, it's not as extreme as the glass castle is, because you have no idea the situations that go on there. But do mm-hmm. you think that her perspective changes. Can you see anything different as when she's, cause obviously she's the same narrator, but do you think when she's drawing little Allison, the perspective of her father is a little bit different than college or older Allison? I think so. Um, I think it goes back to what we were saying in the beginning of our discussion about the way she keeps going back to certain things over and over and over again mm-hmm. and how it's almost like she's coming to these conclusions as she writes the story. Mm-hmm. And I think that I think her perspective does shift as the no, as the novel goes on. Um, but I think that's what makes it so memorable. Is and I like I, I think that's one of the things I really really like about it. Mm-hmm. You know, you have a you have a essentially a dynamic character in Alison yeah. Bechdel as your protagonist. So you see that change happening. Mm-hmm. You see her realize things about her parents. Yep. And I think a lot of it happens once in college. She finds out from her mother that her father has been having these gay affairs for a while now, I think Mm -hmm. then she can really piece together and it makes clear like, oh, why did he force that barrette on me all the time? What was Roy doing there? And so it it makes a lot of sense. I'm glad that she has more of a, trying to think of, a clinical, let's go with clinical, a clinical look uh, on her father. I think that um, it'd be bad if, I could feel some anger or frustration. I, I think some of the art panels sort of go through, but otherwise I think the tone is very even because, yeah, I, I think there there are some positive moments that the art speaks for itself, like, oh, you know, he's playing, he's swinging with me. But then, you know, there are other times with, like, why did he just ask me in to get scissors with this dead body here? But I don't think she tries to present her view of him in any direct way. It's just sort of how, how the feelings were at that moment. And so I, I do like that. Would you agree with that? I agree with that. This is not I escaped the monster. Yeah. Even though, like, yeah, and, you know, I don't know if we get in trouble saying, like, oh, this is an abuse, this is not abuse. But there are certain abusive tendencies in the, his behavior toward his children. Mm-hmm. And But you're right. It's very level. I think that's where it excels. Yeah. 
So. Well, that ends our discussion. So now the only question that really remains is whether or not you would teach it. And I think to a certain extent, I was thinking about this. I guess we've gotten away from you know, is this is this a worthwhile <laughs> is this a worthwhile <laughs> piece of literature? Because I think some things we, we we probably can't teach. But I mean, is this worthwhile? Do you think does this deserve to be on shelves? And do you recommend it to people? And as a secondary, would you teach it? On the first, uh, yeah, I'll answer the first question first. Um, I definitely would recommend this to people. I would recommend this to people to, I think, have the maturity to handle reading it. I think that's really, really important. And that um, there are there are works of literature. We're. I was actually having this conversation today about the hate you give, which <gasps> I have not read, but somebody was complaining that her kid was reading it and was in eighth grade. Oh, wow. And she was like, "There's a lot of cursing and blah 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 blah." And I, and I said – and then we were talking about another book we had been reading, um, uh, The Namesake. And I was saying how I don't think I'd assign that book to a high school student because they – aside from, aside from some, of the, some of the language, I don't think they get it. Like, you know, like there's, there's certain – it's almost like you have to be a certain age to read these, not because of, in this case, the, the, the nudity or, or, the, or, the, or the foul language or anything. But the subject matter itself requires – a certain level of like intelligence and maturity in high school, not everybody has. Now I have high school students who could read this and connect with it in certain ways and they would totally understand it. Mm-hmm. And then they might come back to it in five or 10 years and find it on another level. But then I have a lot of students who, who I don't think would get it at all. So I'd recommend this to somebody who's, I think, I think if they're interested in exploring LGBTQ or queer literature, yeah. I certainly could recommend it like on an individual basis. It certainly should be on library shelves. Mm-hmm. But as far as using it in a high school curriculum for like a whole class novel, I don't think it would work. Even on an AP level, I just don't think it has – I think it's a college-level book in the very least because I think that the, the discussion that you want to have about this book requires – a certain level of student and you're not going to get that even in an AP class, you're not going to get that in all like 30 people in that class, mm. you know? And so, um, so yes, it's very important, but no, I don't think I'd teach this yeah. and it has nothing to do. It has nothing to do with, with gayness. It has nothing to do with queerness or anything. It has everything to do with the maturity of the audience. If this, if her father was a heterosexual and she was a heterosexual, I would say the same thing. Yeah, um, I'd be fired if I taught. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say so, you'd be. I'm I'd have a little more leeway. Yeah, yeah. I get, I have, I get I have, right there yeah. with the coals. I think if I had freedom, if I were at the university level, I would certainly. I think I would teach it, but I would pair it with something because mm-hmm. it very much for me is that relationship between Allison and Bruce, and so. I, I would like to pair. I, it'd be interesting to pair it with actually one of the books that she's, you know, talking about. Maybe not Ulysses, but maybe the Odyssey, or, or looking at perhaps father son, father daughter. Probably because you're going to find more father son relationships and, and seeing, uh, sort of comparing them. I think that'd yeah. be an interesting unit. I think that it's worthwhile. I think uh, this is great for the queer community 
to to have a voice and and to have a story that they could potentially say you know that's my story i very much i liked i i went by myself to fun home but uh you know i i looked around the audience and well i was making assumptions here but there are a lot of you know people coming in together and i thought you know how nice because they probably come here and and that might be this might be like the one musical that really speaks to them. And so I, I think that everyone deserves a story that they can see someone in that story that reminds them of themselves. So I feel like I use them a lot. But <laughs> so I, <laughs> I, I like that. I, and I hope, yeah. I mean, I, I guess I'd have to talk to someone from the LGBTQ community to see what they think about it. But in my mind, I guess yeah. they, they like it. So, yeah. I also think, and, and maybe this is just me, me as somebody who's, you know, who's not queer, enjoying this, I think is also important. And yeah. I'm not cheating my own horn here. I'm just saying that there are, there should be, we need to find more queer literature that non-queer people can read. Absolutely. Because in the same way we need, we need, we need white people to lead, read black or Latino literature. Sure, we need yeah. like just diversity. And I think it, you could, you could put that on that list of like, you know, because that, that's the issue that I've been having trying to find queer themed or just queer writers who that like my students could read in a class mm -hmm. because it's it's out there yeah. but it's it's not as like right up in the forefront or like you know whereas i can if i if i want to bring more black writers in i know like right off the top of my head i can you know i can think of okay there's zornia thurston there's my angela there's tony morrison there's um there's there's contemporary writers as well like you can start naming people and you can name foreign authors in but this this is a realm that's still being kind of discovered, and um, and I think we need to we need to we need to start kind of finding those books and putting them on our on our reading list or putting them on our recommendation list or promoting them some more so that people can you know have more have a better understanding of of who they are. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Okay. Well, now uh, I think we're doing feedback. Yes, and uh, I'll go ahead and, and take the do. email from Professor Allen. Not him. Not him! So he says, Stella and what's his name? <laughs> Moving on, we have a Facebook comment oh, from Robert no, Ward. What do you um, mean? He got okay. it right. He got it right. Yeah, sure he did. Um, okay, he, uh, this, is, this is hot off the presses. Um, if uh, Just a peek behind the curtain. We usually record the day the previous episode comes out. It just happens to work out that way. So we are recording this on the day that our 1984 episode came out, and um, Alan listened to it and already sent us an email. So we threw we threw it into the document. I haven't even finished listening to the episode after it was posted to iTunes, and I edited it. Um, <laughs> I imagine that he says, uh, I imagine that 1984 and today segment of the show, which is we were talking about, um, you know, how do we apply this to today's, the novel to today's world was too short, was short to possibly avoid controversy. And due to the lack, Stella's lack of interest in political things, which I am sure adds positively to her overall emotional well-being and mental health. Did I say that I didn't like politics on the podcast? I was trying to figure out how he knew because that's actually true. Well, I stay away from it. And yeah, I think you might have said it, but not like I don't like politics. But I think you oh, just okay. tend. To, I think you use the phrase politics is in my bag. Okay. 
I will say that um, why should I care about your overall emotional well-being and mental health? But <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, I will say that I think one of the reasons it was so short, it was one of the last questions of the discussion. And by then we were a couple of hours in. <laughs> it was just, you know, so. Um, Tom has a bedtime, people. Yeah. So I'm about past my bedtime. Yeah. All right. Back into Alan's email. Uh, you guys pointed out the issues of the surveillance state post 9-11 and the President Obama's expansion of the NSA's role and mandate, uh, the disclosure of which cost Edward Snowden his freedom. Uh, also, you pointed out the freedom issues that can arise from corporations. I'm more concerned about the issues of government surveillance, but perhaps we can agree on the worst of both worlds is when businesses and the federal government work together. Uh, did you know that the CIA has a venture capital fund to invest in Silicon Valley startups? Uh, before I get my tinfoil hat securely in place – can how much tinfoil can you buy with a quarter? Um, I'll just link to come his this twenty. It took you five <laughs> seconds to come up with that joke. It's late. I'm up past okay. my bedtime. Um, I'll just link to this 2010 Forbes article, and uh, we'll uh, we'll put that article in the um, in the show notes for uh, this. Or I'll, or I'll post it to Facebook or something. The presence of this fund is not a secret, and there's a. Uh, CIA Venture Fund Business Washington CIA.html. So something about about a venture fund, which is interesting. I've never heard about this, so I'll have to read it. He then goes on to say, but the other Orwellian aspect that I see manifesting in today's society is the thought police thinking wrongly about social causes, current events, or politics. One can put can put one on the outs in quotes, with some of their authorities. Uh, I understand that policing speech and actions is not the exact same as policing thought, but it is pretty close. Higher education has often has politicized workplaces, and I have some highly activist partisan colleagues. My contributions to political or social discussions would not be welcome, so I just choose to not participate, which of course does nothing but strengthen the unanimity of the groupthink. So I am part of the problem. I have colleagues who are comfortable rallying, speaking out on their side because in the academic environment, such activism carries no risk. Rallying for my causes, my beliefs, my priorities be, would be less safe. I've, I don't want to go to – this is something where actually I think he and I could sit down and have this as like a separate conversation. But I've felt that way in the past as well. And there are times when I even line up with a lot of the groupthink that's going on in like the environment where I work. But even then I'm like very, very hesitant to be outspoken. Mm. I th- What I think is interesting, and this is something I don't think we pointed out enough, was that – the thought police and a lot of these things, we see it happening not necessarily of the kind of very straightforward governmental oppressive way that Orwell does, that Orwell presents in 1984, but by almost this sort of more organic way that society, the the, the group think the 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 majority thought, you know, things like that do, and and that, and I think I think um, I did bring up Twitter, places like social media apps outlets tend to have this happen and in some cases the policing of speech and the policing of people's actions and what they do or how how they express themselves has led to positive change in our society but then there's all the always the inevitable very sort of like overzealous nature of it and and it's it's a it's a much more nuanced conversation than like exactly what i'm doing here but he does say, and understanding that, uh, so I'll get back into his email, but I do I do think he has a very, very valid point, and I'm, I'm glad he brought that up. 
He says, then understanding that violating the approved code of political speech or social speech or thought is risky. And since I really like my job, well, my lips tend to say sealed. <laughs> uh, that's where I see Orwell's world at work, literally at work. <laughs> great episode. Keep the great shows coming. Professor Allen, who is part of the relatively geeky podcast network. Um, he hosts the quarter of podcast short box showcase. And he also hosts a uh, religion and pop culture themed show called Dorkness to Light, which I've heard is uh, really, really good. I've only listened the one episode I listened to is really good. I was like recommend recommending his stuff. We also have a Facebook thread that was going with Robert Ward, our scholastic book buddy, uh, who brings up Animal Farm. And he said it is very strictly an analogy for Soviet Russia. Uh, from the revolution to Stalin's reign, or Orwell, in a brilliant twist, constructed a world in 1984 in which global communism was achieved and eventually corrupted into the totalitarian nightmare that is presented. Big Brother, uh, a proper premierless committee-controlled governing body, constructed Goldstein as a foil. But what's so brilliant is that Orwell is actually borrowing from Stalin and his purges. The world outside of the inner party is completely ignorant of the state of global communism and is instead under the impression of, of more of a socialism in one country state, which was promoted by Stalin in pursuit to concern more on the USSR's growth rather than promoting further revolutions. This is expanded on in the horrible slog of Goldstein's book. See, we're not the only ones, but it's all there. Ingsoc, English Socialism of Oceania, has long faded from memory, but it states that the Eurasia and East Asia likewise have similar governments. But by this point, global communism isn't necessary because power has been achieved. Goldstein, by physical description alone, is Leon Trotsky, who was incidentally of Jewish ancestry. Okay, so... I, see, I knew that. I knew that came from somewhere. On super tiny note to make note of one super tiny note to make note of Goldstein or Trotsky criticizes Big Brother or Stalin for betraying the revolution. Trotsky literally wrote a book criticizing Stalinism called "The Revolution Betrayed." Where is this? What is the Soviet Union? Where is it going? The dynamic isn't anything special as the analogy that was used prior in Animal Farm. Napoleon as Stalin while Snowball has blamed and vilified as to the citizens as Goldstein is purposely supposed to be for is Trotsky. But yeah, I was still utterly blown away by all the sheer genius of Orwell's construction. He had another cu couple of other comments. Um, he said that after reading the copy he picked up, he rewatched the 84 film and for the first time, Peter Cushing's Edmund as O'Brien's a play uh, from the UK on YouTube and even an American take with Eddie Albert as the star. And he says he wasn't able to listen to the radio version starring Patrick Troughton like he hoped. Uh, if he had to claim a favorite, he says he has to go with the 84 version with John Hurt. Um, he posted a picture of his Blu-ray, which is sold out from Twilight Time, who released also released the Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, Hound of the Baskervilles. He says it's bleak and unrelenting like the others, but the big budget really adds to it. The two-minute hate is no longer a small office affair, but now a full-blown rally that's utterly terrifying. And um, if you were listening to the show, those of you guys who listened, that's the scene I included at the very, very beginning of the episode before uh, Rage Against the Machine kicked in. So. And finally, he says, since Tom mentioned it here, I don't need to get into it, but he is right about Godwin's Law, Goodwin's Law. Uh, if you look up the films on YouTube, you can find an endless cesspool of people completely missing the point reg and regarding liberals and Obama to the government seen in 1984. I'm not saying Trump and his people are there, are, but there is a serious disconnect. 
And um, if you want to dive further into the mouth of hell from YouTube, just start reading the comments in some of those videos. <laughs> Don't read the comments. But that's that's our feedback. Um, thank you. Uh, if if you have more feedback on 1984 or any of the older episodes, please please uh, send it our way. We try to post into the episodes that uh, we try to respond to as much as we can. We try to include as much as we can in every episode that we do because we enjoy getting these this feedback. Do you have any comments about anything? I just want to say that I heard a very interesting setup for a play presentation or adaptation of 1984 and Mm. it was basically the actors are on stage and there is a video camera with them on stage at all times and a live screen behind them so as they're acting this person's like videotaping it and what they're doing is showing up on the screen so it's very much like big brother and you're actually watching in their scene what you're saying yeah so i thought that was pretty interesting Yeah. yeah that's it all right. Well, yes, it's it's that time. Tom, yes. we're doing something special next time because it's the 20th. Yes. Every 10th episode, we take a break from our usual format, and we do a special episode that covers a genre or a couple of works of literature or whatever we decide to do. So our next episode is going to be about – it's going to be actually more popular culture and, and uh, related than it is um, going to be – literature related it's gonna be about novelizations and spin-offs licensed property novels so for instance your novelizations of star wars empire and jedi and the expanded universe that sort of thing and um it's kind of a in a sense a sister show or a sister podcast episode to one that you recently did that I'm going to plug here because I actually really enjoyed it, even though Shag was involved on Ryan Daly's show. So again, Shag invited himself on on Ryan Daly's show. Give me those star Wars Shag and Stella uh, took the mic for, for uh, a few hours and they sat down and discussed the Thrawn, two of the Thrawn novels, uh, Timothy, both by Timothy Zahn, I believe they were all written by Tim yes. Timothy Zahn, right? Okay. Uh, one was the more recent Thrawn, which is part of the current expanded universe of Star Wars, and the other one was the one of the original um, first wave of of expanded universe stuff from back in the early 1990s, Heir to the Empire. And they talked about Grand Admiral Thrawn and the character and and how he was and, but they also got into like, what do you expect out of a novelization? What do you expect out of a licensed property novel? And things like that because Stella fell down the rabbit hole of Star Wars expanded universe novels very badly. And I, instead of throwing her rope to help her up, I threw her more books to help her fall even further. You were throwing dirt on me. Well, because you were like, you know, I read, you were reading uh, Phasma at the time, right? And I was like, hey, have you read the Aftermath trilogy? And um, the only thing that I have that I forgot to loan to you, oh, and maybe no. next time I see you, oh, I will. No, no, it's 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 a mini series. It's comic book mini series. It's called Shattered Empire. It takes place like immediately following Jedi. Okay. So it's it's like five issues. So I gave you the Aftermath trilogy and Bloodline, and um, we had both read Phasma, and so. But yeah, this should be this. This is a discussion I've been wanting to have anyway. It was on my pop culture affidavit topic list for a long time, so I'm really excited, looking forward to that. Um, we're not going to be looking at – I don't know if you do. I don't have any specific novels in mind. 
and so there's no specific reading that anybody has to do for this. Just know that we're going to sit down and talk about um, novelizations and, and and things like that. And um, anything to add to that? No, I think that's it. Okay. So that'll be in about a month. Um, a quick programming note. Um, oh. That that episode will come out in June, and we will have more. Ep- we will have one more episode that I believe will post in will post in July but we're taking a month off after that so there will be no episode in August but yeah so that'll be it so come back in a month for that in the meantime you can find us on Twitter at rec reading cast req reading cast you can also go to our website required reading with Tom and Stella where I say this every episode and I swear one day I will pick up on or we will both pick up on posting um more reviews of things but in the meantime you can see some show notes um for this i will include a link to uh professor allen's the article that professor allen shared about uh forbes from forbes about the cia and uh feel free to send us feedback i think that's it yeah so thank you as always and uh good night until next time when your dad asks you to go into the place with the dead bodies to get him a scissors don't look at the wee wee Mm. goodbye (laughs) good night telephone wire run and run telephone wire sun down on the creek Partly frozen, partly flowing Must be windy, trees are bending Junction 50, field needs mowing Feels like the car is floating Say something, talk to him Say something, anything At the light, at the light, at the light, at the light At the light, at the light, at the light, at the light Like you could say you and I are both hey yeah where do you want to go oh I don't know I know a bar that's kind of hidden away a CD club for folks like you know could be fun but dad I'm not 21 Yeah, right. Telephone wire, long black line. Telephone wire, finely threaded sky. There's the pond where I went wading. There's a sign for Sugar Valley. On the mountain, light is fading. I go back to school tomorrow. Say something, talk to him. In college, my first year there, Norris Jones, he had black wavy hair. Norris Jones, where is he now? 
14 years old in Swenson's barn. It was cold. Lots of boys messed around, you know. For them, it was a game they outgrew. But I always knew. Dad, me too. Since like five, I guess. I prefer to wear boy shirts and pants. I felt absurd in a dress. I really tried to deny my feelings for girls. But I was like you. Dad, me too. Norris Jones. Dad. Norris Jones. Dad. Hey, did I mention that new project I've taken on? Oh, you've seen it out. That old house out on Route 150? Oh, it's been standing out there empty 40, 50 years at least. Telephone wire, stop too fast. Telephone wire, make this not the past. This car ride, this is where it has to happen. There must be some other chances. earlier than I thought. Are you coming in? Telephone wire. That was our last night. Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two true freaks. That's two true freaks. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash required reading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review in iTunes? If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to twotruefreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcasts. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode. There we go. We got it. <laughs> we did. Okay. I hope I wasn't too awkward at the end there. Feel free to edit some of that. I was trying to. I was, really I was, trying, sure to... was happening. You're I slowing was trying... down. Your battery needs a recharge. <laughs>